Välkommen till Freuds Toolbox, skolans inspirationspodd med fokus på känslor, relationer, lärande och ledarskap. Tillsammans med Kenneth Freud får du inspireras av och lära av nationellt och internationellt ledande experter på evidensbaserat lärande och ledarskap. Today we will be talking about a topic of great interest for all schools in Sweden or all over the world, I would say. I mean, I'm a principal myself and I am and my colleagues, we are struggling with what should we prioritize because we have so many tasks, so much to accomplish. So we need to sort of make choices, priorities. And what is more natural than prioritize something that uh, has good uh, effect on, on study results. And uh, because of that is today's guest, Jenny Danahoe, who is a specialist in an area of, I think, interest for all schools that is called collective teacher efficacy. Uh, but Jenny, can you tell me what, what, what is that? Absolutely. <laughs> collective teacher efficacy, first and foremost, is a belief. It's not an initiative. It's not a program, but it's a way of thinking. And it's the idea that teachers believe that they make an educational difference to their students over and above the educational impact of students' homes and communities. And I want to credit um, Megan Shannon Moran for that definition, because I think she, she said that very nicely, that belief that we make an educational difference to our students over and above Uh, the impact that of things that we can't control, those things that we, are not within our influence. Yeah. When I'm thinking about collective teacher efficacy, I think I'm from the sports area in the beginning, like a coach. I'm thinking like a, a soccer team, football team, or or any team. They have like sort of a game plan. They, they believe in the same thing. If they are successful, they sort of work together towards the joint goal that they think they can achieve. Is that something equal to, to this area? I think it is because um, the research also demonstrates that not only does efficacy make a difference in schools where teachers feel a sense of efficaciousness, they get better results, but the research also demonstrates that, that that's true in other domains as well, including sports. Dating back many decades, there's research studies that show when a uh, sports team has a sense of efficacy that they believe they can, um, you know, win over their competition. That they they do. They tend to get better results and perform better. Oh, that's interesting. And I remember recently I read uh, a, a book from John Hattie, and then he's talking about student collective student efficacy. So that is sort of an application of more or less the, the same the same concept then. I think so. And I think where we think about student efficacy, we can think of it from an individual perspective. And we know that 
it's important for students to feel a sense of efficacy because efficacy beliefs really impact how individuals think, feel, motivate themselves and behave. And when there's a sense of efficacy, they persist longer, they put forth more effort. And of course, we know that's important. And then when we think of collective student efficacy, I think a couple of things are important. You mentioned goals a few minutes ago. There should be a collective goal and some opportunities for students to um, interact together in interdependent ways. And I think when those conditions are set in our classrooms, we can reach that collective student efficacy. That is like the learning strategy, cooperative learning that is building that. I I just felt that uh, collective student efficacy was like a next version of that or a, a development somehow that was uh, my same impression thing. yeah yeah I had the same idea too um, that that idea that elements that make cooperative learning effective are those individual accountability and positive interdependence and so for me yeah. that was a link to collective student efficacy as well yeah and uh... Do you think this concept then works with any other sort of teaching strategy or method or whatever? Well, I think it's important in many respects. As I said a moment ago, and I was talking about students, but we can apply the same idea to teachers. When teachers feel a sense of efficacy, they're more likely to make those evidence-based practices or strategies work in their context. We don't need more research about what works. We have a wealth of it. We just need to figure out how to make it work in our environment. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. now efficacy does come into play. There's um, just through through own experience, but also research to demonstrate that teachers will figure out how to make those evidence-based approaches work the greater their sense of efficacy. Yeah, but then it's, uh, it's a nice, you could say nice what, I mean, collective teacher efficacy but uh, to be able to 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 benefit from it you need to know how so can you say something about the how 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 can you sort of increase your collective teacher efficacy then at the school what is sort of good any factors that uh, promotes it well I have two things to share around that and I'll start with the first one um when we think of efficacy and how beliefs are built or how teachers come to interpret what they're capable of accomplishing or forming those efficacy judgments. Albert Bandura, psychologist, identified four sources of efficacy that shape those beliefs. And it's important to understand that efficacy beliefs are future-oriented beliefs based on people's past experiences. And the most potent source of efficacy that individuals and teams draw upon is mastery experiences or success. So when they've experienced something and um, they've also made the link that it was their efforts that made the difference, that's a way to build some efficacy through those successful accomplishments. Could you then make like a reflection when you do sort of result analysis maybe you should focus on like success analysis rather than analyzing uh, what you have failed on doing. Absolutely. Maybe you need both, but uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think the successes is important. I was just preparing for a workshop that I'm going to be facilitating. And I grabbed off of um, a website, a success analysis protocol, because I think it's important to analyze what makes those 
experiences successful and what makes them different from our, you know, routine daily practice. And then celebrating that success becomes important. So, uh, oh, sorry. I was just going to share some some other sources because I I shared the one and Bandura actually identified four. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that firsthand success is is the most, you know, important because it's based on firsthand success. But then the second one is when we see others succeed and we start to think, well, if they did it, then we can do it too. And so providing opportunities to share successes and observe others who are um, in similar situations, but meeting with success becomes important. So there you can relate to the sports era again. If I, I'm from the beginning an athletics coach and you have like the, the dream mile in running, Roddy Bannister, and yeah, now we have a Swedish pool walker that is jumping uh, over all the limits and then more and more will sort of push through the limit or the sky. Yeah, that is that is true. Yeah, the same factor then, yeah. Yeah. And then the third source that Bandura identified was when somebody that we um, view as credible and trustworthy, when they convince us to that we constitute an effective team. So like say a coach, um, an instructional coach, I was thinking in a school or a school administrator working with a team of teachers and really just using that persuasion to um, help teachers understand that even though they might have a lot of challenging circumstances that they have what it takes and that they have the ability to solve problems and come together to, um, you know, see some great results. And then the last source, the fourth Mm -hmm. is um, when we feel good about something, like we have a physical reaction to risk. And sometimes that physical reaction could be negative in the, the way that it might be stress or anxiety or fear that we experience. And those negative emotions really become enemies of efficacy and the positive ones uh, become a way to boost efficacy. So those are the, the four sources of efficacy. Yeah, interesting. But in, in most school, I think not only in Sweden, a problem to, to sort of get all these mutual experiences and things together is time. So you need, do you have any advice on how to sort of make it make it possible in a school yeah i I know that there's um that's always an issue right there's there's a lack of time for people to come together to do this work i've seen some creative timetables where you know in some cases there's an early release and every wednesday the students go home you know earlier in the afternoon and teachers have time to come together um and then I, I've seen some creative schedules where, you know, depending on the resources, that I guess, that are available at the school, the principal can carve out some time for teachers. And it really is times one factor, but also creating the motivation for, for yeah. teachers to come together becomes also a, an adaptive challenge, I think. It's, it's like building a culture, then you can say. Yeah. And yeah. where it's well, happening, it's pretty cool. How how often do you think sort of to to have a process to to build up and increase uh, the level of of collective teacher efficacy? How often do you think you need to work on it? 
I think that teachers need to have time to work together at least once a week, at the very least. Yeah. And I think that even more important than that time becomes a structure for their collaboration needs to be in place for them to identify something that really is meaningful to all of them to work toward a goal and then to identify strategies that they've used that have worked or look to evidence to try something new and then to put that in practice and then to come back and reflect and say, did what we do make a difference for our students? And if so, then let's celebrate that and figure out if not, why, and then try again. And so it becomes that iterative cycle of continuous improvement or engagement in in identifying needs and solutions. Yeah. Uh, Something else that I ask every guest that in most literature and most most learning strategies or inclusion strategies, uh, everyone agrees on that building positive relations is important and that uh, building trust, trust within an organization between people are really, really important things. But not so many people say anything about how can you do that? You can have a talent that it just happens, but if you don't have the talent, how can you sort of work on it? Do you have an advice on on that as well? Well, when it comes to that issue of trust, I think a lot of times people believe that it's important to ensure that culture of trust is in place before diving too deeply into the work of school improvement. And that worries me because if we wait, you know, it, yeah. oh, we can't do this yet because we got to build the trust. Yeah. And when I think of... Um, some of the research on trust, I think a lot of times people have shown that enhanced relational trust is more of an outcome of effective collaboration than it is an antecedent. And so I believe that we build trust while engaging in the work. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too, actually. But building relations in something that you still can work on sort of intentionally, but... I agree. And I think, well, I do think that it's, it's important. A minimal amount of relational trust is necessary to encourage teachers to, you know, go out on a limb or take a chance together. Um, And what I have found in my experience when doing this work, um, and I'm not sure if this is something you're familiar with, but I use a lot of protocols in this work. And a protocol is really like, um, there's a variety of them for a variety of purposes, but Um, Like, for example, if a teacher team is going to examine student work, then I'll bring in a protocol that lays out some steps and some a process for them to do that. So there's there's some safety, Um, you know, it's it's more of a a objective view than a subjective view. It removes that, you know, that risk associated sometimes with exposing our practice. So I find that by bringing protocols into this work it really helps it to helps. establish yeah. a culture of risk-taking. That's good. So if you would give advice on one hand to principals and on the other hand to teachers, if they want to be successful and use sort of the concept of, they want to be good at collective teacher efficacy, how can you advise them? What should they do? Well, I think for principals, it's really important that they support teachers in in doing this work. 
show them support by um, ensuring that their voices are heard when it yeah. comes to what matters related to policy and practice in schools and giving teachers opportunities to um, shape decisions. And so empowering teachers becomes, I think, important. Um, the literature demonstrates that there's a clear and strong relationship between the degree of teacher leadership in a school and collective efficacy. So I think for principals to make room for teachers to lead becomes yeah. important. Yeah. And for teachers, I think, you know, when we, we think of our beliefs and if we come into this profession really believing we can make a difference, I think that's why most of us got into this profession and just keeping that in the forefront and reminding ourselves that, that every interaction we have with students, we have the capability really to, to touch their lives in such a positive way. And just remembering that belief system becomes so important. That is uh, really good advice, I think. I have read, uh, you have two books in Swedish, as you know. Uh, I think both of these ones are really good for teachers or staff at schools to use, like a book circle to use at uh, staff meetings to sort of start working on this. That would be nice. my little advice in, in, in this matter. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to see that you've got a lot of tabs in those books. <laughs> yeah, listen, I don't want to show you the inside because I use it. Uh, you would wonder what happens in my brain because there's a lot of colors and uh, comments and stuff. But I always, always put these ones when I find something really interesting. I want to find it really quick. I always do like this. I do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you could give any more to, to sort of, uh, I understand that uh, teacher, the collective teacher efficacy is, is, is important because I mean, the effect sizes of it is, uh, is enormous. It's fantastic results. Are there any barriers that you know that you sort of, how can you avoid sort of uh, get to and stop and fail? I guess there are some barriers. Otherwise everyone would do it perfectly in every school already i think so yeah in, a friend of mine and i have played around with this idea of the enemies of efficacy yeah. and um, we've identified some of those barriers and and one of them really is um when teachers when it's when the environment is um that of a lot of ambiguity you know ambiguity yeah. i think to a lack of efficacy when people don't know what's going on or why decisions are made or when we don't have a common understanding of vision and goals what what is the goal becomes important so ambiguity i think yeah. would be an enemy of efficacy and of course communication becomes a way to to solve that and sharing as explicitly as we can reasons why decisions are made and helping stay focused on that vision and the goals that we have the collective goals becomes important yeah yeah interesting and i think another enemy yeah is magnitude you know like that idea that if we think the task or um what we're being um you know faced with if the dilemma is too large yeah that magnitude comes into play because when you form judgments about efficacy you take that into account 
And so I think it becomes important to reduce our perception of the magnitude of the challenge by breaking down things into smaller manageable chunks and by setting short-term goals that will help us ultimately reach some of those longer-term goals. If you take sort of another step, now we're talking of a specific school. If you would be talking to, now I'm a principal, if I instead was like a director for all the schools in a city or or a municipality, Could you give me some advice as well? What what should I do? Yeah, that's a good question. And because I do believe that efficacy comes into play at every level. Yeah. Um, The teacher efficacy impacts how teachers um, address the needs of their students and a principal's efficacy, uh, you know, would come into play when leading the work of school improvement. And of course, from a district perspective, the district um, staff or Mm. leaders really, you know, how they feel a sense of efficacy would come into play. And I think that, you know, when we think of district leadership, I I think that it would be important to set up opportunities for principals. So you would do the same, actually, then you can talk about sort of collective principal efficacy and focus on a meeting every week and sort of the the same conditions to to sort of uh, break ground for, for the schools and the teachers. I think so. I think setting up opportunities for principals to observe each other and, you know, pairing like schools together to share effective instruction, like effective um, leadership practices would become important opportunities for those vicarious experiences as a source of efficacy. I was starting thinking uh, immediately. It's, uh, it's interesting thoughts. And I think you can do it on, on, on all levels. It's, yeah, it's really, really inspiring. Yeah, I think so too. It's exciting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah, And I think it's something for, for every school, no matter where. It's nothing to do with which country or where. Of course, for all our schools in Sweden, this is uh, something to, to build on. And of course, adapt to your own conditions. But since... Since you can use any teaching strategy you would like, it's nothing of that kind that is hampering. So you can still continue with your profile you might have on your school and just sort of make it more effective, as I interpret what you're saying then. Yeah, absolutely. I think it boils down also to really knowing collective impact. And so... You know, really valuing that opportunity to tap into the expertise of others, because I mean, together we are better than we are alone, mm-hmm. and and that just becomes important for our students ultimately. Yeah. Wouldn't prestige also be a barrier? I think my experience from working with organization is that if you're prestigeless, uh, a lot will happen, a lot of positive things. But if your prestige gets in the way, it it hampers all sorts of development. I agree. Yeah. I'm really happy with uh, our conversation so far. And I just wanted to, if you have any, any final advice, something that I missed asked about, something important that you should, uh, should tell viewers in Sweden about. 
Well, you did mention the effect size. And so I'm assuming that that people who are viewing or listening to this are familiar with uh, John Hattie's visible learning synthesis and the fact that collective efficacy has been identified as the number one factor that matters most in raising student achievement. Yeah, it's good to say, I think. And it's, it's really interesting in relation to, for instance, in Sweden, many people talk about socioeconomic uh, effects. Can you comment if you compare socioeconomic effects to to this? Yeah, when we look at the effect size research, of course, we know the greater the effect size, the greater the magnitude of that particular influence. And collective teacher efficacy is three times more powerful and predictive of student achievement than socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. Uh, Collective teacher efficacy, the effect size as the most recent update of John Hattie's synthesis is 1.36, while um, socioeconomic status is uh, 0.51, I believe, but it's it's yeah, maybe 0.51.53 or something like that. So yeah, it's it's inc- incredibly more powerful. And so I think that's important for teachers to understand that they make a difference. And and I think people know that they they yeah, they, yeah. they must understand that. I mean, we're with kids so so long during the day, and like I said, every interaction we have the potential to really significantly improve their lives yeah but i think this is really important information because sometimes to think mm, i'm running a school in a in a challenged area socioeconomically speaking and thinks that oh it's uh, we have no chance but have all the chances in the world you can still make a great difference and be really successful Yes, the research is is really clear on that. When looking and measuring efficacy in schools, regardless of the demographics, there's a lot of uh, studies that show, even if there's a school with um, low socioeconomic status, high percentage of single family homes, or even um, lots of students with individual education plans, where efficacy is more firmly established, they have better achievement results. Yeah. I think that is great final words and really good information for everyone to to hear. Thank you so much for contributing. My doggies are just coming (laughs) back. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank Thank you you. so much for contributing to our Swedish schools. Okay. Well, thank you.